Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. Paul Smith, um, boutique owner. Nick Weber, father of two, married to a wonderful woman, writer, art historian. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about creativity and ideas. Everything's so instant on social media. Everything is now, now, now. And Annie's work is an example of calmness and doing things by hand. And Annie was obsessed with the idea of abstraction as the one place where she could feel complete balance and joy and a sense of being centered. I'm Lucas Werner, editorial director of David's Werner Books. In every episode on the podcast, we'll introduce you to a surprising pairing. We're taking the artists we work with at the gallery and putting them in conversation with some of the world's most extraordinary makers and thinkers. Today's pairing, the clothing designer Paul Smith and the writer Nicholas Fox Weber. For over 40 years, Paul Smith has been one of the world's foremost designers. He's based in Britain, but he now has stores all over the world, and his creative aesthetic takes inspiration from high art to daily life and everything in between. Some of the signature details of his designs include multicolored stripes, floral prints, and splashes of color in surprising places like shirt cuffs and jacket linings. But in everything he does, he manages to combine tradition and modernity. Nicholas Fox Weber is the executive director of the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation. He is the author of more than a dozen books and essays about artists, designers, and cultural movements. He also founded a nonprofit that assists with medical care and education in Senegal, which I was lucky enough to visit a year and a half ago. We brought the two of them together because of an Annie Albers retrospective, now up at the Tate Modern in London. Annie was an extraordinary textile designer and weaver and a great modernist artist. Her work continues to be a touchstone for other artists and designers, including Paul Smith, who recently created a capsule collection based on one of Annie's textiles. Nicholas Fox Weber knew Annie during her lifetime, in addition to knowing Joseph Albers, and his intimacy with the artist and Paul's enthusiasm for her work were really the foundation for this pairing. We were lucky enough to tape this conversation in Paul's design studio. It's a building in London's Covent Garden neighborhood. It's a light-filled studio with lots of his clothes and one central room with a large wooden table surrounded by walls lined with books and a really eclectic array of objects that grab your attention. From unusual toys and sports equipment to distinctive food packaging and wrappers, many other things. Paul told us that one of his fans has been hand-making objects, covering them in postage stamps and sending them with no return address to him for years. Many of those objects were scattered around the space as well. Including a ski, a chair, uh, a fluffy bunny, and they never arrive in a box. They always arrive with the stamps and the address on the actual items and much, much more. I'm a great fan of cycling, so there's an enormous quantity of bicycles here and uh, cycle jerseys. And 
I always have my design meetings around this table. And uh, what's fantastic is uh, we'll be starting the conversation off, of which next Wednesday, for instance, I have a 2020 inspiration meeting. So often I just lean back and grab something uh, or two things, and that will be kitsch and beautiful, rough and smooth, big and small, a series of colours, and that's exactly where the way that Annie worked fits in with the way I work. Paul, was there maybe an object or some group of objects in your childhood that you can remember making a really big impact on you, visually, Um, aesthetically? Well, uh, I had an Oshka Kokoshka book and a a Kandinsky book. I can't imagine where they came from. I think my father gave them to me. And then I pretended I was Kandinsky for about three weeks and did a painting on some hardboard and had it on the wall. Uh, next to a photograph from one of those famous uh, Roman holiday or something like that, one of those famous, you know, films from from uh, Italy. My father was a uh, an amateur photographer, and uh, he was the founder member of the local camera club in the town where we lived, and so. He built his own darkroom. Of course, it was film then, and his old uh, darkroom in the attic of our house. And so at the age of 11, he bought me a camera, which I have over there on the shelf, uh, Kodak Retinet. And uh, I used to develop and and print uh, with him. And one of the fantastic things about using a camera like that is that you have a viewfinder. And you look through the viewfinder, and I think that is something that helped me look and see. Mm. A lot of people look, but they don't see. And I think that helped me see. Everything was so much more precious and so much more about the composition of the photograph you were taking. And that's definitely helped me like crazy over the years with the way I do my shop, design my shops, the window dressing, the the clothes, the proportion, the scale, and it's helped a lot. The distinction you make between looking and seeing is so germane to our discussing Annie. And I... Competitive as I am, I'm, you know, I play squash and tennis and I'm a, I find it very hard to lose, but I didn't mind it when The Guardian quoted me talking too much and then ended with the sentence to the effect of, and as Paul Smith puts it much more succinctly, she teaches you not just to look but to see. And in this case, I was very happy to see this. We're sorry. <laughs> it wasn't your fault. I was very happy to see you sort of hit the winning shot because it, it really was the winning shot. But you're still actively taking photographs as well. That's something that you continue. Do you see it as, it's a, as true. a Yeah, I mean, actually, I just came back from Japan yesterday and, I, and I'd been using film there. I shot about uh, 10 rolls of film and I haven't seen any of the images yet. So that'll be very exciting to see whether there are any that come out. You know, when I was starting out, I mean, my shop was, I started my first first little shop in, I'm not really saying when, because I'm <laughs> saying how old I am. No, in 1970, I, I had this 12 foot by 12 foot room that I called a shop. Yes. And then it was only open Fridays and Saturdays because I realized that nobody really wanted what I had in the shop. Uh, but And I had, needed to earn some money. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I did lots of anything that came along, design fabric, colorist. But one of the things was photography. 
So I worked uh, for magazines and uh, took photographs. Uh, what did you have in the shop? Uh, it was clothes, but it was in Nottingham in the middle of England, so there were no boutiques. Right. <laughs> it, there were just clothes shops, but there was no fashionable clothes shops. And so the things in my shop were very interesting. Uh, some of them were basic, like a, a black cashmere sweater in a polo neck, which was yes. my little espresso bar moments and 501 Levi's that you couldn't get in Britain then. You had to bring in from New York. And that shop was the, the birth of having shops all around the world, which I have in 73 countries now, uh, where my shops now have things in them. Mm. So yes. books, objects, ceramics, paintings, always, always what we call an art wall. And um, and that was because the shop was so tiny that when you came in, it was the the customer was right in front of you. So I used all anything I could find, like a poster I'd bought in Paris or a Art Nouveau cigarette box from the local market, and and that was an icebreaker. You know, I've realized I've never asked you this. What was Annie's and maybe also Joseph's relationship to clothing and to fashion, as much as one can speak to that sort of thing? Um, their relationship to clothing and fashion was obsessive, but it was very personal. Annie was so involved with clothing that she could become utterly tactless. So she once said to Alfred Barr, director of the Museum of Modern Art, of the woman who was curator of design there, how can you have her as your curator of design when she wears those ghastly dresses? <laughs> and yeah. I once brought my, I mean, I often brought my very pretty wife to see Annie, and Kathy's not a woman who's terribly confident about clothing or really very interested in clothing. But we were going to a big Albers event. Kathy had bought a beautiful new dress, and we walked into the Albers' house to pick Annie up to go to the opening, and she looked at Kathy and said, Is that a new dress? Yes, said Kathy, and Annie said, can you still return it? <laughs> so, so very involved, surprisingly but, involved in clothing and in fashion. Oh, yeah. when she was asked who the greatest artist of the 20th century was, she answered Coco Chanel. Wow. Well, of course, Coco Chanel's famous little short jackets were all from a mill in Scotland called Heather Mills. And uh, they were just peppered with colour. So they would be, uh, if you looked really under a, a microscope or a lint, what's something called a linen prover, which I use a lot, uh, you, you wouldn't believe the vibrant colours in a Heather Mills fabric, uh, which would be probably why, why she liked it a lot. And she said that Chanel liberated women she by did, enabling yeah. them to wear pants. Catherine Hepburn said, you can't be a modern woman unless you dress like a man. And that was because she liked to wear big baggy shirts and trousers because she could squat down and do things. And, you know, that was maybe Annie was the same. Yes, she liked to be able to paint do, the walls of do, the house yeah, do whatever be, you be physically active. Yeah. So how did you, in the context of Annie Albers, when we're discussing, how did you first encounter that work? Was it through art or was it through text? I mean, sort of what was your first uh, encounter with uh, Annie, you mean? Yes, Annie, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think it was, the, I think it was the, 
you'd help me here, but I think there was a Bauhaus, big Bauhaus exhibition in 1968 in the Royal Academy in London, I think. Um, uh, but if not, there was a book came out by, which is behind you actually. But And I, I carried this Bauhaus book round with me uh, on my Greek holidays, um, anywhere, and it's, I found it this morning, and and all the pages are falling out, and of course there was Annie's work in there, and and Joseph's, and of course, you know, all the all the famous Bauhaus people, not just not just the uh, artists and the uh, textile designers, the weavers, mm. but that's probably when I remember this from this Royal the Royal Academy uh, book. And then when did your, Nicholas and Paul, when did your conversation about Annie begin? Because you, in 2015, there was already a collection that had a yeah, relationship. Yeah, probably how we, why we met. I don't know, really. I had seen some of the Annie Albers-related work and a Bauhaus book in the shop on the Boulevard Rospay. And I knew from that that you loved her work. You yeah. referred to it on the website. And I thought, well, I've got to meet him. Yeah. So I arranged to meet you, and then you and I went to the show in Milan together, which is the first time we met in person. Yeah. And I must tell you that this was an exhibition at a new anthropology museum in Milan, very much in keeping with the Albers' approach to life, because it was art for everyone, meant to bring in a lot of migrant communities in Milan and to mix cultures rather than separate them. And for the opening of the museum, we did an exhibition that was Annie and Joseph Albers and, and their pre-Columbian collection. Mm -hmm. And having communicated with you before actually meeting you, Paul, we then, I then met you at the show. And I remember one of my daughters was there and I, she came in late and I said to her, this is Paul Smith, you'll really like him. He doesn't stop using his eyes and he's no bullshit. And your comment was, oh, I think I'd like that as my, on my business card. Uses his eyes and no bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So that was a great moment. But I, for me, you saw that exhibition in a way that I have very rarely seen other people observe mm. and look and engage. I very specifically remember showing you a textile called Two. By Annie, and I was talking about it as a two-headed python because she had collected a pre-Columbian piece of a two-headed python. And you said, yes, yes, but, but what I'm seeing is, and you pointed out something to me, and I knew the piece well, but I had not really observed it. What you were seeing was in the background, and you said to me, look at the elastic quality against the taut quality. And my eyes opened. And that's what I mean about you as a real seer of things. And mm. and we had a, <laughs> it was a fantastic hour of just, mm. just looking. One of my things I did when I had my little, my first little shop, as I said earlier, I, I sort of worked Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday doing anything that came along just to earn some money. And one of the things was working in Yorkshire uh, at the mills there, designing cloth. And so I learned a tremendous amount about uh, textures and the tightness of a weave, the looseness of a weave, 
and the, the suit I've got on, which unfortunately the people can't hear, but it's got a lovely little boucle yarn in it, which which means it's completely smooth everywhere. Yes. And then uh, the Prince of Wales check is in this yarn called a boucle yarn, which has got little loops in it. And so things like that, you wouldn't normally think, I know, I'll put a boucle yarn in. Yes. But I just do. And I don't know where it comes from, I suppose, those early days in, in Yorkshire. With an instinct for surprise, when Annie and Joseph were on their honeymoon in Florence, she was cold and they and bought a wool cap. And she was so intrigued by its elastic quality that she took it apart and discovered a form of elastic thread that, this was 1925, right. that she didn't know existed. But Exactly. It's fantastic. It's I, fan- I love all that. So this, the piece that inspired this new collection, this new capsule, yeah. as it were, is a piece that she would have made right around the time of the story of the cap, 1927 or 26, so a year or two later. How old would Annie have been at that no, time? You're, exa- you're exactly right. She, um, she was born in 1899, and she and Joseph married in 1925, and a marriage of two different worlds, and they went to Florence for their honeymoon, and afterwards, they both worked with a very related geometry, Joseph in glass and Annie in textile. And she said that she considered it the direct influence of the design on the Duomo and on some of the geometric Romanesque facades of Santa Maria Novella and other churches in Florence. So there is a an impact of, of that trip. The Duomo's magical with its self-supporting dome. It's amazing. You know, the, the dome is, it just leans, all the bricks lean on each other. That's I did not it, know that. Yeah, it's just famous. It's called a self-supporting dome and it's, uh, it's still there, <laughs> luckily. And did you both discuss, Nicholas and Paul, this particular piece? Was this a decision? Did you see it somewhere, Paul? What, what sort of, what led you to this? Uh, because uh, when I, I think I made the decision based on the fact that I thought I could translate that into something which Annie would have liked in today's world and uh, that was cheerful, happy, easy to wear. And so that one to me worked because it's, I'm, I'm not sure whether I'm allowed to say Mondrianish or not, but <laughs> it, it's, you know, it's just very simple of... Uh, vertical and horizontal lines and so um, it, it, that that's what attracted me to it that I could, thought I could translate the work her work into something that was relevant to today not only is Modrianish um, or esque an unapt adjective but Annie and Joseph Albers both adored Mondrian's work and she particularly because of his faith in vertical and horizontal lines and his absence of diagonal lines. And for Annie, abstraction, as it was for Mondrian, was just the source of joy in life. Uh, Mondrian often compared what he called the tragic, which was everything that wasn't abstract, to his geometric abstraction. And Annie was obsessed with the idea of abstraction as the one place where she could feel complete balance and joy and a sense of being centered. And so 
your reference to him is, you know, on the money. Because, I was allowed. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Of course, warping, warp. There's warps and wefts, which is, you know, horizontal and vertical. So it's it's perfect, you know, it's perfect for that. But, you know, yes. astonishing was before the conversation began, Paul, you and I were looking at this Annie Albers notebook, which was a notebook that Nicholas and I, Fat Nicholas, had at the foundation. It's yeah. wonderful. Which Amazing. I stumbled across, and then we created a facsimile of, which has been... I might steal it. I'm going to leave it here for oh, you. Good. But, <laughs> but what I was totally shocked by is that as we were looking through it, you began to point out something that I had never realized, that the designs, the drawings, were sort of paired with notes that were describing how she was going to translate these into actual weave textiles, into actual woven things. And you said, this is exactly like the process we go through when we were producing something. Because um, because yarn is three-dimensional. It's got height to it. And obviously the drawings are flat, but you know her notes are then turning it into life and to... I don't know whether one of you could get lean back and get those um, yarns on a, on a piece of paper. I know that uh, everybody can only listen, but I can. This is how I work. It's a white white card, and then around the white card we we wrap yarn, and uh, that's how we get to some of our lovely stripes. And of course, the thing is with Annie's notes is that she she was doing it in words. And uh, because yarn has a height, and if you put orange and red together, uh, it's feisty. And if you put white and blue together, it's more tranquil and calm. And so by doing it this way, which is white card, and then we call them wrappings, which is where you literally wrap the yarn around, sometimes one or two threads, and sometimes 20, 30, 40 threads, sometimes a 20-minute job, sometimes a, an hour job. And that's, we think, why we our stripes for shirts and ties and socks and et cetera are so vibrant because we do it in a very old-fashioned way, which is what I've been doing since I was 21 years of age. And the white background is a key element. Uh, it's it, it, it's a neutral, it's a neutral base basically. So it's not, it's only key in the fact it doesn't, you're not fighting with a color. Yes. You know, so the yarn is doing all the work. So many people of course ask about the relationship of Annie and Joseph and their work and the use of white as the background um, which you've also just referred to, is an essential link between them. And I think it explains the great whiteness of their house and and yeah. um, white as, as the setting for action. And I have to say that one of the most glorious encounters I ever saw Annie have was 1978, and my wife and... Jackie Onassis had been antiquing together, which meant crawling around dirty barns in Connecticut where Jackie was looking for country furniture for her house on Martha's Vineyard. And Annie could not resist the temptation to meet Jackie. A uh, few people could. And so Kathy and Jackie, after this day of rummaging through barns, arrived at the Albers' house. And Jackie turned into the perfect high school girl, meeting the grand dame. And Annie sat there at the top of the stairs. And first of all, Jackie looked around and said, oh, Mrs. Albers, it's such an honor. And Annie said, as she would, 
Mrs. Onassis, have you heard of the Bauhaus? And Jackie said, oh, I have, and I love it, and I know how important you were there. And, and then she said, I lived in a White House once, too, <laughs> which I, I found quite extraordinary. And then she looked around, and she said, and this was an example of Jackie being one of those people who not only looked but saw, she looked into the living room, two red homages to the square on one wall, two very different ones on another, and nothing else in the room except for whiteness. And she said, just like Matisse's chapel advance, all the white and then the color. And one realized no one had scripted the line for her. She just perceived it. And... It was a fantastic encounter ending with um, the ravishing Jackie turning to me in front of the house and saying, there's a lot of power emanating from that wheelchair. <laughs> you know, it, what you're hearing this reminds me, thinking about the question of reputation over a lifetime, how reputation yes. builds. And of course, what's exciting about this moment with the Tate Show opening and with this co collaboration with Annie, which in itself is incredible that a 28-year-old Annie Albers at 28 designing this textile cloth is taken up now yes. in 2018 to create clothes that will be worn by young people around the world. I mean, that yes. whole cycle is wonderful and it's quite moving. How have you seen Annie's reputation change, Nicholas, or grow? You know, I think among the people who knew her, she was always considered a, a giant. Yes. But in a funny way, she was also overshadowed in many ways, by Joseph. Yes. And it feels like now she's really coming into her own. And do you have a sense for why that might be happening now, what it is about her work in particular that seems to be speaking so well to younger people, to you know, people looking at art now? I have an answer for that, Lucas. But Paul, what is it for you in her work mm. that makes it just, it's everywhere today. Yeah, there's two things, really. One is, for me, it, it was just the, the fact that she was uh, very experimental and she didn't just weave flat Bravo. fabrics. Bravo, I mean, she, <laughs> uh, you know, she just, hmm. as I said earlier about this room, rough and smooth, big and small, kitchen beautiful, she was polythene, I think, at one point. And then the other thing, I think, which is so relevant now, today, is the fact that I hope... People are getting so bored with the homogenization. The, the, the world is just, all the big brands have got full thousand shops. They all have a similar appearance. The, everything's so instant on social media. Everything quick is now, now, now. And, and Annie's work is an example of calmness and doing things by hand and doing things with thought and with time and uh, lateral thinking and and not all so instant and that's why she's so fantastically relevant now. Paul you've absolutely thrilled me with that answer because the qualities that you emphasized are experimental which was vital to Annie and taking the time to do something by hand weaving. And never once did you refer to her as, in any of the categorizations that she did not like, which were woman artist, 
um, wife of more famous man, uh, Jewish artists. They could all be applied to her, and she didn't like it. She wanted to be an artist. It was about vision. It was What's about seeing. What's so interesting seeing. is her, it, you could describe hand-weaving as craft, yes. which, it, which it is, but her hers with craft, but with the modern art, uh, the final thing was modern art, basically. So it was a, it was it was created in a craft way, but the final wall hanging or piece of fabric was like a painting. You know, I've it's a question that I've always wanted to ask. That's less Annie related and more directly related to your industry, which is at this increasing fast pace. How do you find time to actually look and really see a piece of art? You know, something that you and I have more the luxury of doing, Nicholas. Yeah. The fact that you're able to make that time, I mean, that's sort of, I think there would be more designers would probably want to have that time, but actually yeah. don't. Um, I, I'm, I'm about to say something rather swell-headed, but honestly, I just see things so quickly and clearly, and I don't mean to be big-headed when I say that. It's just that I seem to be, you know, I look at a site humbly and I just think, I'm taking his pencil for a walk, you know, and I just know that there's a little squiggle there and a little squiggle there and that's that'll do me. I got, I've got it in my head. Or the Kandinsky or the, you know, the the fine lines and the, the, the pieces of colour. or So I, I'm just, I'm, I sort of seem to vacuum it in quite quickly and, and then that turns into... Um, you know, just into into work. Well, but Paul, when I think about what I might have anticipated in a conversation with you, I didn't expect that this would be the day when I would learn about the construction of the Duomo. And I studied history of architecture at good universities. I should have known that already. This is the vision of someone who sees, but who also understands craft and construction and the necessity of how things are put I'm just, together. Uh, I, and also, I'm a very curious person. Often in this room, I wonder if people think it's, think it's childish, whereas I think it's childlike. And what I mean by that is that children are so uncluttered with education and experience. Yes. And they say, why has that man got a big nose? Because they're completely honest. And, yes. And... and Picasso was it, or one of the, the big, the greats said, "I you know, spent my life trying to continue to paint like a child." You know. Yes. And um, well, I think that that's what I get from this room. I and mean, if you look to your left, you see a ten or twelve Japanese parcels wrapped in Japanese fabric, and you know that's pattern on pattern on pattern. And I just look at it and see a dress. That the quality of being childlike is such an important one and something that both of the Alberses talked about a lot. So Annie said that as a child, she had favorite moments and one was hearing an orchestra tune up and she and her sister would go to hear the Berlin Symphony. She remembered that they wore black velvet dresses with white silk cuffs and collars, so texture and color memory. But it was the orchestra tuning up that had a playfulness and a sense of the components coming together. Joseph, who came from a very poor background, uh, no money, said that his earliest visual memory was of jumping on the floor of a post office between the black and white marble squares. 
and I I've actually just made some some socks and some knitwear and and the edge of some knitwear in black and white squares based on the a floor I saw in Italy that was very shiny marble. Uh, so I think it's all there if you want it. Yes. You, you can find inspiration in anything, and if you can't, please look again. And I have to say that talking with you makes Annie and Joseph seem so alive to me that I almost said, oh, let's get a pair of those socks for Joseph. <laughs> On that note, I want to thank you both so much for having done this. This was a really lovely conversation. Thank you uh, so well, much. Thanks a lot. It's been great. Paul, I cannot tell you what a thrill it is to get into the wonderful, your wonderful mind, not only your creativity, but your human values, which are rare, desperately needed in the world and always beautiful. Uh, thank you very much, Dick. I won't be able to get out the door. My head will be so swelled. <laughs> uh, anyway, Paul Smith, boutique owner, saying goodbye. Thanks. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists in this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review Dialogues on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner, and thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. This podcast is a partnership between David Zwerner and Slate Studios.